OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. So welcome, Nick. You're, uh, we're very excited to have you today at, at uh, Ask an Angel, and uh, where we work with, interview, and talk with investors globally. And uh, tomorrow will be our 50th interview. So we're very excited um, to be having you today. And uh, the way we like to start and jump into things is if you can give us a little bit of a background on yourself, kind of where you've come from, uh, what you've been up to, and where you've come through, and then where you are today. And then one thing about you that nobody would know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, to give you a little bit of background, I was, uh, I think I was born with the entrepreneurial gene. I was selling golf balls to my dad's friends as a kid and had a pressure washing business and, you know, really any way that I could generate value for the, you know, small community around me. I grew up in a suburb near Vancouver called Port Moody, a beautiful area and, and really enjoyed my time there. Um, heading through university, I went to the University of Victoria, just off the coast in Vancouver here. I took the entrepreneurship track. I got a commerce degree there and, you know, started a bunch of businesses during my time there and just kind of got the serial entrepreneur ball rolling, uh, moved to Europe briefly, was doing some schooling over there, met a girl over there and was there for, for a little bit longer than initially anticipated. And then I came back to Vancouver uh, when I was about 21 or 22 at the time. Um, and I and I dove kind of headfirst into the the public venture capital markets, uh, where I was raising money for public businesses, learning how to market them, how to speak to investors, uh, you know, accumulating a network of my own. Um, had some some fairly early success, kind of by the time I was 24, 25, and and began, you know, I had this network of amazing entrepreneurs around me. I you know was at the front of starting a lot of these businesses, and so. I was using the you know the capital that I was that I was you know making in the public markets to you know not only further fund public deals but also kind of act as a as an angel investor in private companies and helping people put put companies together and putting the right people in the right seats. So I was kind of in this unique situation, being this twenty five year old kid that didn't really know anything, but you know had had made a little bit of money in the markets and just really started getting my feet wet uh, in the angel investing space. So I guess you know fast forward. Um, I'm 29 now, and um, I've uh, started a you know a, a bunch of businesses in the last few years. I've, there's a few successful ones that are they're still running. I've got a, a marketing agency that I started in the public space called Edge Investments um, that that's done really well, run by a good friend of mine, Kevin Matheson. Um, I sit on the board of a few uh, private companies that I'm invested in, and and public boards, and uh, and then more recently teamed up with some great people to start a company called gopublic.ai. And essentially what we do is we identify uh, great private businesses around the world. We connect with their founders and, you know, we learn a lot about their story and how we can help and, and how we typically help is we uh, typically find them financing of, you know, a minimum of a million dollars um, upwards of, you know, 25 million, depending on the, the capital needs of the business. Um, and then alongside us helping them with that capital raise, uh, we take them public on one of the two Canadian stock exchanges here, either the TSX Venture or the Canadian Securities Exchange. So apologize for the long-winded answer, but that's that's kind of the, the history and up until now. No, that's good. That's a that's a great history. 
Um, well, some of the, the content and things that I've read and learned and listened about uh, your background and um, what fascinate, fascinated me about, uh, obviously, the things that you do uh, about everything you do is very fascinating. But the one thing that I really wanted to touch on and, and learn a bit more about is, and you mentioned this when you were a kid, you were um, finding golf balls and selling them to, to your father and everybody. What was it like through your journey um, around this hustle? Because it sounds like, and there's, I don't say very few people, but it's limited on people understanding what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And I think you've kind of found that and you've built it into everything you do. Maybe you can kind of dive into a little bit more on what a hustle really means. I know people use it as a side hustle or I'm doing these other things that are like extracurricular activities, but really they're not that. It's, it's uh, a completely different game and it's, it's understanding where you want to be and pushing yourself to get there. But maybe you can dive in a little bit about what this hustle means to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to only get myself involved in businesses that I'm really passionate about. And uh, how I know I'm really passionate about it is my, you know, my level of drive and excitement and, and the, the pure hustle that goes into it. Um, and, and it's about, for me, the, the hustle part is very innate. I just, I have that drive to work the 15, 16, 17 hours a day on end. Um, actually where I struggle the most with is, um, you know, being really conscientious of, of balance and making sure that I, you know, um, you know, I, I make enough time to, to keep my mental health great, to keep my physical health great, to make sure I spend time with friends and that I'm filling all those buckets, um, because I can become obsessive, um, about whatever it is I'm working on. I mean, to give you an example, uh, this morning was a good example. I rolled over in bed this morning and, clock was 3am and couldn't get back to sleep. So I was like, well, I've got some stuff that I can do to, you know, help move the company along and help out, you know, some of our stakeholders. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's an amazing bug to have um, because it allows you to create change in the world through business and your ideas and, and, and putting the right people together. So I guess, I guess that's a little bit about my mentality towards hustle. No, and that's great because that's really a, the biggest part to hustle is being able to understand that you've got it, but then using it. Uh, your brain turns on and you just start working. And like you said, at 3 a.m., you're I can either try and fight sleeping for the next three hours. I can just get up and do something that's going to make a difference. I'm going to get up and do something that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was my morning this morning. Well, that's that's not a bad morning. That's pretty good. No. It's 6 a.m. here when you're waking up at 3, so it's uh, it's somewhere it's going to be normal times. So there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So did you find in, the, in this hustle that you've built up as a kid kind of growing forward that you found mechanisms to help your teams build in this hustle? Like, is there things that you've kind of uh, – people see you. Like, I can, as an example, um, I found that when I was – building my first company that as I was working, if I shut my Skype off, everybody would think that the day was done. So I'm like, what the hell? So I always had it on, always working. I'm like, I can't turn this thing off because the team's working off my work. So mm -hmm. there's a way to keep people uh, really in thrive and driving and really excited about what you're doing. What have you found mechanisms that can help other entrepreneurs think, you know what, uh, it's a work ethic, but it's also about understanding where you want to be. Yeah, I think I, I really started developing that skill <clears throat> as a young kid. Um, I remember extremely vividly. Uh, I, I was a I, I loved to play sports as a kid and played some high level athletics. And 
I was always, even from the ages of six, seven, eight years old, really fascinated by my teammates and what made us all stronger together. And that, you know, helping, you know, um, you know, helping, you know, one player or teammate on my team kind of excel to the next level and really buy in. The method for doing that was completely individualized by each individual human. And so, you know, some people, you know, needed that kind of tough love. Some people needed. Uh, and so I think I've really tried to refine that and I, you know, read a lot on it and, and really want to understand people and what, what, what makes them tick. Cause like, that's much different than what, what makes me tick. And, uh, you know, being a leader, I think is about, you know, giving people the tools and the opportunity to grow um, to higher heights than even yourself. And so I, I you know, really look to hire smart people that are, you know, willing to put in the work and, and I'll do whatever I can as sort of the, the leader of the business and in some cases to uh, unleash that out of them. Oh, that's brilliant. And you're, you're so true that if you can start finding ways to build value individually into people on your team, they're going to keep delivering. They're going to keep wanting to be part of it. Uh, they don't want to leave. And, you know, 10 years can go by and they're still living off this whole team build and this whole team dream of where you're going. Right. Um, and I find that fascinating because a lot of times people just think this is a cookie cutter process to be an entrepreneur, right? You just jump in and, Oh, today I'm going to do this. And this is how this works. Don't <laughs> yeah. realize that you're in a blender and the blender is speeding up and slowing down and speeding up. And you got to be able to catch on the right way to keep moving that business forward. It's so true. And I, I think back to, I mean, and, and kind of speaking to, you know, what motivates people. I mean, I, I had, I had someone working for me a few years ago that, you know, was going through a bit of a tough time mentally and, you know, he was doing a great job at work and, you know, we could have gave, gave him, you know, a little bonus for, for doing well. But, you know, I took the time out to, you know, him and I went and did yoga every Thursday at 9 a.m. And it's not something I typically do, but I think it just meant a lot that I was willing to kind of go that extra step to kind of be in that work with him. And I think, you know, you know, we're, I think COVID has really emphasized that, that like, we're really not wired to be alone. And I think the more that you can build kinship and family inside of your organization, the more that everyone's going to pull together. So it's, yeah, it's something that I really care deeply about. And connection is something that, you know, I've studied at a neuroscience level and something that I've just been purely really fascinated by. So um, I, I try and take, take those things that I learn and apply them to, to my companies. That's awesome. So when you started your, your companies and you kind of dived into the things that really interested you, uh, you mentioned that a lot of it came from passion. Was it passion on passion side projects that you just started to dive into? Or were it, is it things that you were just highly interested through school and all the way in and you decided, you know what, I'm going to create a business around this? What kind of got you started in all this? Well, what got me started was, you know, where I first kind of had my first initial success. Um, I found that I was, uh, I was quite good at sales and I was great at building relationships with people because, you know, I truly care about them. And it was more than just a business transaction. So I started uh, raising capital for a number of different companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange, kind of from the ages of 22 to 26. And, you know, I had, I was under some great tutelage by some amazing mentors. Um, you know, one of which I, I want to highlight is a gentleman named Bill Trimble here in Vancouver. Um, I actually met Bill on a ski hill when I was 12 years old and, and he kind of took me under his wing and I'd come down to his office every three or four months and put on my suit and, um, you know, he just give me life advice and learn about what he's thinking about. And, 
Um, so yeah, the, the, the mentorship was kind of very pivotal in kind of getting it going. And, you know, when you're young and hungry and willing to work for next to nothing and purely on success basis, you know, people, people love that hustle and love to see people like that succeed. And I think if you just say, you know, humble to humble to the craft and, and put in your time, just, you, you know, that value will follow you, will follow you. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of what got me started. And I, and I liked when you, you talk about mentorship, which is really good. And it's a intric, um, very integral part of growing as an early founder. But there's the word that you threw out there again, which was the hustle. And then doing things for free, doing things that allowed you to learn from great people. Um, was that something your father taught you or that you heard one day? Or was it just something you were like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I need to work for that guy for free. I need to jump in there and get something. I got to exchange my labor for that person's knowledge. And what triggered that? I don't know what triggered it, but I just, I realized really early on how little I knew and that I was hungry to learn. And I was always a really good learner in school. And so I knew that if I just applied myself, that I could, I, I feel confident that I can learn anything. And it just takes, you know, it, it takes me to really care about that thing. And, and I find, I found it really interesting the last years. Like I've got, you know, relatively severe ADHD, um, never taken any medication and on, you know, some day-to-day tasks, like getting the dentist booked and my, like, I'm, I'm not the strongest, but it's really interesting that when I find something that I really care about, my level of attention to detail goes up like a hundred X and it makes me not want to work on anything else. And so I think kind of the the mixture between the the level of focus that's uh, it's intoxicating for me because it's not the way my brain is wired to work. And so when I find that kind of sweet spot, um, I just I'm I, I become almost like a, a dog on a bone with an idea. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's really motivating. Oh, I love it. And uh, all these things are helpful, right? Because it's a mindset and it's a way you engage into something or the way you dive into your next initiative or you dive into your business. And what that does, it represents you, represents your business and all the people that are going to join in that, that new push forward. And I think that's very valuable for startups to understand that, you know, it's a team play. It's learning how to get that hustle. It's learning how to dive into something or how to stay focused or have passion if you're going to start a new company have something that gives you a drive and makes you want to wake up at 3.30 in the morning to do it. Because if you'd lack those abilities, you're going to have a tough time getting yourself going at seven in the morning when you need to be able to be on your game and close that next million dollar deal. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, I think just to kind of add on that, I think it's incredibly important to know why you're doing it. I'm a huge believer that reasons create results and um, I think once we understand why it becomes much easier to pull those all nighters and put in the work because it's something that's bigger than yourself. And, you know, for me in, in, in starting go and helping growth companies, you know, access more capital and, you know, help them push their companies further into the world, you know, selfishly, uh, the reason for for really starting the business was, you know, I wanted to assemble some great people in my team and figure out, you know, what are the world views that we all share together that through this platform and this business, we can help push further and further into the world. Because, um, you know, with the absence of capital, 
ideas sometimes are powerless. And with capital and, you know, we want to align with founders that share some of the same world visions as we do. And whether that's, you know, helping with, you know, biotech, or if that's helping with, you know, education in third world countries, or if it's plant-based food to help, you know, climate change, whatever it is, we have, like, I think it's important for everyone to know what their core beliefs are, and then use business as a tool for change. And I think, you know, that's what really keeps me going at, you know, 3.30 in the morning is, is thinking about, you know, the things I'm doing today, um, although they might not be as glamorous as everyone thinks that the, the founder, CEO, entrepreneur life is, it really allows to create, um, you know, a, immense impact. That's awesome. And, and that passion impact, it gives you a, a vision of where you want to go. I want to keep helping uh, using sustainability and all of these great terms that are all coming out into the investment community now, which is changing the way people invest. Uh, changing the way companies are actually working. Um, you know, we had a company pitch and they were in the oil and gas space and it's not very sexy anymore. And um, I think you mentioned some other things they weren't very sexy anymore in the mining space. So people look at this and think, boo, these companies are terrible. So they don't even want to envision where these companies can go anymore because they've been soured by the rest of the community. But then you mentioned uh, that you kind of look at these and say, wait a second, it's not sour. These are just shifting. They're pivoting into being uh, more of a sustainable business and doing something maybe we could jump in and work with. And, and that's kind of how I looked at it as well. I'm like, wait a second, if you're doing something this way, is it that way you're doing it? They're like, no, no, no we changed the whole process and we're actually uh, very sustainable in how we're, we're using this mining equipment or how we're doing this. So how much of, um, how much of, these types of companies are getting you excited because, hey, they're a depreciated asset, if you will, in the markets. Um, and is this something you guys are looking at saying, hey, you know what, we might be able to do something with these guys and help them move through uh, uh, our funnel? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, you know, for a lot of my investing career, a lot of my capital has gone towards contrarian ideas. And there was a book I read um, by a guy that I know quite well. It's called My Electrician Drives a Porsche. And uh, the book is about, you know, most investors are looking on page one of the newspaper for their investing ideas. I'm much more interested in finding the stories that are on page 16 that are going to page one. And so I think just having an open mind, really challenging what the status quo is, what people think is hot right now. And actually a big thing of what we're building in our technology right now is building predictive capabilities to our AI software to try and figure out where the puck is going and be able, being able to tie you know, real-time market data um, and compare that to other private companies out there in the ecosphere and you know, be able to draw conclusions that you know, this company might be undervalued right now, but with the right tweaks and the right team and the right capital and the right investors, it could be a darling, right? And it's, you know, it's our job to kind of act as that, you know, conductor of the symphony, uh, if you might, and, uh, and putting the right, the right musicians in the right seats to play, you know, the beautiful orchestra. Oh, that's awesome. So you, you kind of, we've gone through this little journey through the, the hustle and the sales and being able to build up this business and get into that entrepreneurial spirit and getting teams behind you and then figuring out what is a good way to invest or which types of companies to invest in. Um, where does this put you guys now in the markets? What are you looking for? What are the types of companies that you focus on? What's the level Series A? Is it 
early stage? Where are you guys kind of shifting and driving your model into? Yeah. So, I mean, at first and foremost, and, and probably most investors say this, but it's all about the team um, before anything else. I don't really care what the idea is. If, if it's not a strong team that's going to run the business, uh, I'm not really interested unless they're interested in me placing a new team in place of the idea. Um, uh, assuming that the team checks out, um, you know, we look for, you know, businesses that have strong vision that, you know, have had some proof of traction. It doesn't need to be much, but I'd love, I love businesses that, you know, did 500 or a million dollars last year in sales. Doesn't need to be overly profitable, but I want to know that people actually want your product or whatever service you offer. Um, and I want to find businesses that have that hockey stick curve potential um, because that's what, you know, the public markets really pay up for. That's what all our investors in the brokerage community are looking for. They're looking for that, you know, little bit de-risked, but, you know, maybe they're doing a million dollars in sales this year, half a million dollar sales in this year, but, you know, can they get to 25 or 50 million in sales in the next three to five years? And so those are kind of the, the scope at which we look through our opportunities. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're building relationships with, you know, the biggest brokers, hedge funds, uh, merchant banks around the world. And so, you know, they have their own mandates. You know, for example, I, had, I came across um, an investment banker yesterday and, you know, they said, look, we're looking for, you know, $100 million valuation, logistics business, we'll pay X percent if you can find us the right deal. So, you know, a lot of what we do is aggregating all this kind of complex uh, qualitative data and then having a, an engine in the background, letting us know who should meet who. So the, the business is, you know, it's very much finding the round pegs and putting them in the round holes and finding the star-shaped pegs and putting the star-shaped holes. Um, and then the businesses that we come across that, you know, we fall in love with their team and their mission, that's when we pull out our checkbook and we'll write big checks into the deal. We want to get involved. We'll help structure. We'll help roll up our sleeves. So we kind of have two components and, and the kind of, round peg round hole component of our business allows us to be uh, allows us to be powerful on the on the deals that we are doing that that you know really mean a lot to us personally no that's good and when you guys do find this company is um i guess maybe it is to give people a better understanding of how you take them public uh because the the, the tsv is um a little bit different than the tsx uh, like there's different measures. What are those measures that allow you? Because we've seen companies that have very little revenues that are on the TSV, but they also don't trade any volume and they have other issues. So where is that sweet spot that really lines up with the best position for you guys to say, yeah, you guys are ready for this market and then we can move you along into the TSX, NASDAQ all the way up as you continue to grow. Is there a starting point? Uh, you mentioned the million dollars, but you also have to have money in order to get into um, into those markets. So how does that kind of shape up? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the smallest kind of companies that we work with are minimum $2 million valuation it can be, it can be pre-revenue. Um, but it's not our sweet spot or sweet. So it's probably the, you know, 5 million value to 25 or 30 million value, sometimes up to 50, okay. um, that have had, had some level of traction, have a good growth story, as I mentioned. And so what happens is we'll 
We meet with the founders. We have them fill out an assessment that asks them about 45 questions about everything about their business in terms of projections, how much money the founders have put in, share structure, um, you know, what IP they have. Once that checks out, we then take them through an educational system, which basically teaches them from A to Z what going public means, because very few founders are familiar with that process, especially here in Canada. So we take them through that educational funnel. Once they check out there, then we meet with them and find out what their capital needs are and, and how we can best support them. Once we have all that information, then you know our extensive Rolodex of financiers, brokers, deal makers, we put the people together that are already looking for deals just like that one. Um, and so we put this whole group together. We, get, we come to an agreement in terms of valuation of the private business, how much they're raising, and then we'll coordinate the shell company. So um, the shell company is essentially what allows the private business to go public. Um, it's called a reverse takeover. You can also do a traditional IPO. Uh, there's a few different ways to get public, but it's typically through these uh, shell vehicles, which I think in some parts of the world, shell has a, has a bad connotation, but... Uh, we have a very kind of vibrant community here in Canada that that does these types of transactions. And so, you know, once those three people, so you've got the private cap, you've got the private company, you've got the capital, you've got the shell vehicle, you you put those all together in a room, they create a deal, um, and then you're you're basically public. And so the 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 things that you need to do leading up to going public is you'll need two years audited financials, um, which typically costs. Thirty to forty thousand dollars Canadian to get done, um, and then you're going to need about a hundred and twenty to a hundred and eighty thousand dollars in legal fees. So all in, you're looking at about a two hundred thousand dollar investment to get public. Um, you know, oftentimes we meet with companies that just don't have two hundred grand in the bank, and um, and that's totally fine. That happens probably more times than not. So what typically happens? is the financiers that are going to invest in the business. They'll loan the business the 200 k to get public, and then they're just paid back once the, the capital is raised. And so um, that, that whole process from the time that you know, we have our first conversation to you know, your shares being traded public um, can be as quick as 60 days, but more times than not, it's, it's 90 to 120. So it typically takes probably three, three and a half months on average to get the transaction done from point A to point Z. Awesome. And that's a, a great explanation on, on how that works and, and very helpful. I think a lot of startups fear the whole side of financing and understanding how that all works, but then this is even much bigger of a, uh, an endeavor. So there's a lot um, a learning curve for sure on how startups will work that way. Um, and when, even when you have a company, we've had a few that have gone RTO or SPAC if they're in the US. Um, so there's different vehicles, but also like even if you're going to the TSX, the, there's a higher platform, you need 5 million. Um, yeah. And it kind of just keeps going all the way up. But I, what I like about what you guys do, because that's so cool, is that you're actually getting companies uh, into the public face, which means that they have audited financials and they're making sure they're keeping track of their financials um, because a lot of the times we have a lot of companies where it's a tough go trying to figure out, uh, hey, can I get this? Can I get that? And, you know, there's not always a lot of um, giving on that side when you're looking for uh, the full financials then being audited. So um, it, there's a lot of protection that comes in with what you guys are doing by bringing them into the public market. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting. 
Yeah, I think one more thing that I'll add is I think what makes us quite unique is our business model. Uh, we're a 100% success-based firm. So we we approach private companies. We say, look, if you're selected and we can set you up with the right financiers, um, we'll connect you with you know one to $25 million. Um, we don't ask for any upfront payment. We don't ask for any monthly payment. We just want to align with the best businesses. And if we're able to complete what we say we can complete, uh, then we're awarded, um, typically paid in the form of shares. So it's not, you know, cash off your balance sheet. But if you'd prefer to pay cash, that's fine too. Um, and so it's a it's a completely, you know, it's a free option call for them for us to get to work. And then they can choose to uh, say yes or no to the deal. And then from the other side of the transaction, when we're talking to financiers, you know, we're, we have the same deal with them. We just want to bring them better deal flow that we've already vetted through our due diligence system. We've already educated them so they don't need to you know, spend the three, four, five hours getting their founder up to speed. So we're saving these brokers and deal makers and financiers a lot of time and headache. And so we've actually got a deal platform that's launching. Um, hopefully it'll be live in the next two weeks from now. Um, and so that's where you know all we'll have a database of our private companies looking to go public and for our financiers to be able to reach them. Awesome. Sounds very exciting. You guys are uh, moving quite quickly and there's lots happening in the space. So it's great timing as well. Thanks. Uh, there was, um, there's a few other things that I was curious on. And I think you had, it's a, the other business on the marketing side. Um, how much does the millennials play into what you're doing here? And does it at all? Is there any cross pollination where you're kind of like, now nah, that runs a bit separate. These are two different ways of investing and we try to keep them separated. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, Kevin Matheson, who runs edge investments. Now we founded the company together. Um, he has really done a fantastic job kind of building this millennial community. I think during COVID, we all saw the headlines of the Robin hood traders and, you know, all these people, you know, retail investors becoming traders for the first time. And, you know, it was interesting when, when him and I started the company, uh, two and a half years ago, when we first started pitching companies, everyone was brushing off being like, ah, I don't think millennials have money to invest and can actually have impact in the market. Um, so I don't know if I want to pay for your services. And now, um, you know, Edge is, is really one of the darlings of, of the public scene because, you know, they're utilizing TikTok videos. They're utilizing um, Discord groups and WhatsApp groups and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube ads and getting in all the chat rooms. So, um, yeah, I think that millennials are playing a, a bigger and bigger role. Um, you know, I just hope that, you know, that these investors don't think that markets are always like this because they're not. And, um, you know, it's, it's greed, greed takes hold of, of most investors. And, uh, I just, I hope to, to not see a, a sad ending to this story. So that's my, my one kind of words of caution for the, you know, the, the new, um, you know, in the last year have become day traders or investors. And how much do you think that was fed and this is totally offside topic, but how much do you think that was fed because of governments providing um, uh, CERB funds or whatever they were called and, and pushing, dishing out all this money that everybody was like, hey, I'm a student. I just got two grand a month. I'm going to play the market. So how much do you think was of the markets are being driven by that? Or how much do you think it's being driven by the fact that people are just at home and they want to just play? 
Yeah, I, I think it, I think it's a mixture. I, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's say it's 50-50. I think a really big component was, you know, there was three or four months where we were at home and there's, you know, there's no sports on TV. There's no new movies. There's no new content. And, you know, every, every second ad on Facebook is, you know, this 16-year-old kid that just made 170 grand in two hours. And, and so I think that, <clears throat> yeah, the stimulus helped. But I think people were just like bored as hell at home. And, you know, some of these new platforms sit like Robinhood have done such a fantastic job gamifying it that it's almost like playing a video game, which is which is quite quite scary when you think about, um, you know, what is actually being being done on these platforms. But it, it, it is what it is. Agreed. So just uh, to kind of wrap that part up and, and maybe we'll uh, we'll throw the crystal ball at it. But um, what do you think is going to happen in the public markets as you guys are bringing companies public? What do you think is going to happen this year? Do you think everything is going to just keep coasting up to this massive um, skyscraper of, uh, of change? Or do you think there's going to be a shift and a change uh, downwards? Or how do you think that's going to work out? Yeah, I, I wish I had a crystal ball because I would if I did, then I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be on a beach somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, the rate at which the markets have been running up the ladder is is likely unsustainable. And at what part, at what point the the music turns off at the party, I don't know if that's going to happen. Maybe the music just gets turned down a little bit. And it consolidates here for a little bit. I would love to see that. I think that would be really healthy for the markets right now. Um, but you're seeing you're seeing companies printing a lot of cheap money, and that helps businesses grow. And um, you know, from a you know, I look at alternative investments such as Bitcoin um, as you know, kind of the perfect hedge to um, to governments printing unlimited stimulus. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the next six to twelve months looks like. I'm, I'm firmly positioned in the markets um, with, you know, twenty to twenty-five percent cash on the sidelines. And so, when I think it's undervalued, I'm closer to ten. And when I think that we're ready for something nasty, I'm probably closer to fifty. So. I guess my allocation of cash kind of is is kind of in the middle. Yeah, you never know. One minute you're you're doing uh, really well, and then thirty seconds later you're like, "Shit, I better pull some of this down and make my way over here." So, yeah, anything's uh, possible. The markets are pretty jumpy. So, my mentor that I mentioned earlier had a really great quote for me when I was learning about the markets from him, and he said, "The markets move up the stairs and down in elevators," and. Uh, and that's so awesome. you just always, always got to be, always got to be on your toes. You do. That's awesome. Uh, well, we're going to shift. Uh, we're going to shift ourselves a little bit here, and we're going to jump into some rapid fire questions. And then uh, we have a couple of personal questions that we're going to ask at the end. And uh, but if you're ready to go, we'll jump into these uh, rapid fire ones. Yeah, fire away. All right. So, uh, how did you get started in investing in early stage companies? Mm. When I was 15, I um, had been hearing my mentor, Bill, and my dad talk about investing in these growth companies. And so I convinced my dad to open a, a little account for me. And 
I was, you know, I bought 500 bucks of some mining company that, that my dad was telling me about. And I just wanted to be involved. And actually, even earlier than that, something I have in my office upstairs is um, for my uh, first birthday, um, my dad bought me three shares in Disney. And so I, I, I still hold them to this day. And uh, oh, I guess... I guess that was my first uh, 40x investment. <laughs> That's awesome. Great yeah. story. I love that. Uh, what's your favorite part of investing? The psychology, um, being able to stomach the downturns um, and use them to your advantage, essentially making moves that are in opposite of your emotions. Okay. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Probably at least 10. Okay. Um, I would say, yeah, probably 75% of those are, are, are public companies that I'm kind of moving in and out of more fluidly. And I'm investing in maybe two or three private um, businesses as, as an angel year. Okay. Nope. That's perfect. Uh, any verticals you like to focus on? Mm. Great team. The rest is uh, the rest is pretty negotiable. I'm, uh, you know, I I I truly believe that that climate change is the probably the single most the biggest problem we face as humanity right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the companies that are able to create change uh, in that arena will be uh, the most valuable companies in the world ten to fifteen years from now. I love it. Uh, any due diligence requirements that you look for before making a commitment? Mm. I like to talk to other people that have worked with the founders, either invested, co-founders. I like to interview the team, figure out who everyone thinks is the most valuable person on that team. Um, yeah, buttoned up financials. Um yeah, a lot of it comes to the team. I mean, there's only so much you can, I've never seen a bad projection. And, uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> that's true. That is true. But I like that. The most valuable person on the team, find out who that is. I, that's, a, that's a great insight for sure. I, I don't think uh, anybody's ever referenced that because it makes a big difference. Because if you hear that person's gone, then uh, that's where you should start um, really diving into figuring out how this company is going to correct itself because uh, power players are hard to uh, recover from. Yeah. And I also find it extremely interesting people that nominate themselves as the most valuable people in the team. And they're often almost all times not. Yep. I like it. Very valuable. Love it. Uh, outside the DD requirements, is there anything that uh, you like to, uh, you mentioned the team side of it. Is there, uh, you put a lot of impetus on the CEO or on the product side, anything else that really stands out that you want to make sure that uh, the team has, or the business has covered? Yeah, the CEO is, is, is going to be the one typically that drives, uh, drives the company. So that's kind of where it starts, depending on what kind of company it is, if it's technology related. Um, I want the person who is accountable for the technology to be one, extremely proficient at their job, and two, also have enough skin in the game to care. Um, and so that's a big thing. And yeah, I mean, fit, fit culturally, um, you know, we only have so many hours on this earth. 
and I want to spend them with, with people that I enjoy their company and we um, have respect for each other. And um, so yeah, just that, that cultural fit, it's, it's, you know, I've seen a lot of good deals where the fit wasn't there and um, you know, I, I pass on those. Okay. I like it. Uh, do you, do you have um, any preferred terms on investing? Like common shares, equity, saves, anything that you prefer to have when you're making an investment? One of my favorite things about investing and what I do is the level of uh, creativity that can be unleashed in a deal. And um, it's a passion of mine to figure out what is the best win-win-win for everybody. And mm-hmm. so sometimes that's straight equity. Sometimes it's some kind of convertible debt. Sometimes um, equity converts based on performance of team. Um, I'm happy to get creative because I want everyone's incentives to be aligned and I want everyone to feel like they are walking away with exactly what they want or as close to that as possible. I like it. Uh, Do you lead rounds and take board seats? Yes and yes. Okay. And that's it. That's all we're going to do for those questions. Really, off the hot seat. So that was good. Um, so the, the next question I have is like the way, um, we structure this question is that, and I try to shift the way I ask it because every time it's a little bit different, but we're kind of looking for, you know, in the time that you've been investing and and working with early stage founders and going through the process and helping them, there's always that one story that just blows their mind that what this startup went through or what the founder had to do in order to survive or fail or win. Uh, So we're always looking for that kind of that heartfelt story that really just blows your mind that she had to do, uh, I don't know, whatever it was, almost on the brink of failure. And then she just did something that just changed the whole business and the direction went, you know, went to the moon. Is there, uh, do you have any of those stories that come to mind? Yeah, I do. Um, It's a personal story as well. Um, So when I was uh, 20 years old, I was... uh, I was, I was uh, living with a friend and we were just coming up with new business ideas every night. And we had this, we had this crazy idea that if we could figure out when 3d scanning technology was going to come into iPhones, that we, you could 3d scan someone's body or your own body, and you could order clothes that perfectly fit you every time. And it would solve both, you know, there's people like me, like I'm six foot five and I have a super long torso and my legs aren't that long. So I have a tough time finding clothes. And so this could be a great solution for those people because, you know, the, the traditional manufacturers have kind of told us like you fit in these three buckets and like, that's all there is. And like, we're all, we all come in different shapes and sizes. So, um, you know, we had this idea, um, we needed to buy this body scanner to do all this testing. And the body scanner was about $20,000 us. And, um, and we were working like bar jobs at the time. And so like, we wanted to be able to commit full time to, to working on it. So we had this plan to, um, to pitch an investor friend of ours, um, uh, on this idea. So we were actually down at CES in Las Vegas. Uh, my, my, my business partner on the idea, his dad's company is a 3d printing company that was presenting at CES and the, um, the investor, the, the majority shareholder was there and that's who we wanted to pitch on our idea. So, um, we go up to him during the show. We're like, you know, Hey, so-and-so we'd, uh, 
you know, we'd love to, you know, tell you about this idea. And we start going through it. And he says, you know what, come meet me at my house down in Palm Springs uh, tomorrow night, drive down there and we'll talk about it. So we're sitting at the table. It's January 15th, eight years ago. And um, so we start getting into the pitch and telling them how we're you know, on the way back from Palm Springs to Vancouver. We're going to stop at five different locations. We're going to go check out all these 3D body scanners. Um, and then we're going to come up with a plan. And we need about $75,000 to get started. And so we do this whole pitch. And we're like, so won't reveal his name you know, would you, would you like to, like, do you want to be involved with us? And he just, he looks at us square in the eye and he says, how's your steak? And the conversation was over. Like he didn't even acknowledge our pitch. And so we're a little bit disheartened. We had a great night that night with him, but never spoke about the pitch again. Uh, we get back to Vancouver, uh, you know, the next week and we sit down, my partner and I, and we say, and we'd gone actually on the way home, we stopped at all the different body scanning places to go through the machines. We found the one that we wanted. And so we got home and, um, and we said, look, like if we don't get this deal done in the next two weeks, we're leaving all our apart, we're leaving everything in our apartment. We're getting on a plane to Bali and we're just like, we're going to go figure it out. So we emailed the investor again, being like, hey, can we meet you for a quick bite one of these nights? So five days later, we go and meet him again. And you know, we've got the idea this much further. We found the body scanner. We like have this plan. We've got an office space for you know 500 bucks a month. We pitch him again. And again, he says he, he's not ready to commit. So it's January 28th. We got three days left until we go to Bali. And we sent him another email. Crickets. So on the morning of February 1st, we're going to book our flights that night. We give it one last try and we booked a meeting with the incorporation lawyer in Vancouver, you know, in the hopes that like this white knight will come and do it. So we call the investor and we say, Hey, we've got this incorporation meeting. Do you want to come? So he comes to meet us for coffee before we walk up to the incorporation lawyer. He still has not said yes, that he's in. We're sitting at this table and like, we don't have the money to even for the 1500 bucks to get the company incorporated. And all of a sudden the lawyer looks at us and says, you know, how will you be incorporated? And the investor pipes up. He's like, we'll do it this way, that way. Me and my partner kind of looking at each other. It's our first ever deal we've done. We're just trying to contain our excitement, go for a, a drink at Earl's next to the place. He writes us the check. We go off and uh, yeah, so that it was uh, a lot of persistence to to kind of get that first deal done and has definitely rubbed off on, on the way that I, I approach things now. That's an awesome story. And the fact that it was all the last second, you're like, I'm going to pray that this guy shows up and two, that we are going to be able to close this deal. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. You know what? It, it's uh, it, again, it goes back to that hustle, but it also goes to your desire to win and your desire to make it happen. And, and that's great that uh, they saw the vision and they got aligned to it, right? So that makes, uh, makes for a great story and a, and a great outcome. So kudos. That's awesome. Um, yeah, all right. So we're going we're gonna to shift into uh, the personal side. So what's your favorite sports team? Mm, I'm a big LeBron fan, so Lakers. Okay, perfect. Um, all right. What is your favorite movie and what character would you play? Mm. Um, Inception. Okay. And the character I would play, there was, I, I don't know her name, but the younger girl in the movie who is actually the architect of the dreams. Okay. Um, yep. 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 That's, 
yeah, I, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Awesome. There was uh, there was another um, investor that I talked to that also picked uh, Inception as their favorite movie as well, and cool. uh, I believe that they're. Um, I think they went with um, DiCaprio as their uh, uh, as the character that would play them or they would play. So mm. that's very cool. Um, I asked this question because what I learned from a past uh, group that we work with, podcast company, and uh, they asked a question uh, different but similar to the fact that it's uh, more personable. So I thought, you know what, I've done all these interviews, but I never asked personal questions because it's not my thing. I'm not very good at that personal side. So I'm going to ask, but one that allows me to put a movie and a character to the movie because a lot of people uh, envision them, their favorite movie is their favorite movie because they see themselves as a character. So that becomes your, if you don't like the movie, you're not gonna be like, oh, this movie's great and I wanna be the orange. Like you're not, you know what I mean? It doesn't really zen to you. So you find someone that's similar. And uh, well, I watch the movies and I'm like, man, that's exactly how he is. That's so cool. So- uh, That's a, a cool of, question. Yeah, a lot of transfer that you can get from a character in a movie, right? So. Um, and I, I started to think about myself. I'm like, what character would I be in the movie? And I'm like, I could name like a hundred movies because I would be eight million different characters because I can't figure out which one would be just me. I'd be like, no, I don't have a favorite movie. There's two men. <laughs> <laughs> so, but awesome. um, what, what a great question. Yeah. So, so Nick, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for speeding through when I caught you off guard there, but uh, brilliant. And uh, we got, as I always do, took lots of notes. And uh, a big fan of uh, all the things that you guys are doing. Uh, I love the whole side of working with millennials and being able to open up a different avenue and drive people into the markets. But you shared a lot of great information and hopefully the audience gets a lot out of it. And uh, the way we like to kind of end our, our show is we want to leave you the last word. So the last thing that you want to share to investors or to startups, any words of advice, any thoughts, I leave it to you. But again, thank you for all your time today. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I think um, what I would love to leave investors and startups and entrepreneurs is, you know, it sounds corny, but find your reason why you do things. Why, why start this idea? Why do you go to the gym? Why do you keep mentally fit? And once you understand why you do it, it becomes increasingly more easy to um, have the passion and the, uh, the diligence that it takes to succeed. I love it. I wholly, I wholeheartedly agree with that, man. Have a why, have a reason. Yeah. It gets you up in the morning. It does. Brilliant. Again, Nick, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Jeffrey. Appreciate it. Well, that was uh, that was Nick. Awesome. It was uh, great to see and uh, loved everything that he talked about. Um, you know, things that uh, really stood out. Uh, obviously, a big fan of Inception. I'm going to watch the movie again because now I got to figure out all these characters. Um, but. Uh, you know, I, I think that being able to, to bring companies public, I think really makes a big difference. Utilizing that young, uh, young group, uh, millennials and, and how they're investing makes a big difference as well. Um, and then digging into that most valuable player on the team. I really like that investing and uh, calling up and figuring out who is that key player makes a big difference. So uh, they're doing some good stuff, man. And I like that CTO having skin in the game, making sure that that person is going to keep helping you build and then utilizing the culture as well. So uh, great chatting with Nick. Have a great day, guys.